Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Please turn to this week's Parsha's Parsha's Kisete. There are so many things to talk about in this Parsha. Please turn to page 1048. Page 1048. I believe it's correct that there are more individual mitzvos in this week's Parsha than in any other Parsha. I think that's correct. If not, it's in the top two or three. So this is a mitzvah that we've actually encountered earlier in the Torah. It's repeated here. In the middle of the page, page 1048, Middle of the page, Pasuk number one, number Aleph. Lo sire eshor achicha oes seyon nidachim v'yisalam mehem. It should not be the case that you see that your fellow, his uh, donkey or something, or, or something else, or his ox or something else that belongs to him is lost, and you turn away as if you don't see it, Rather, hashav to shivem lachicha, you should return it to him. This is a mitzvah called hashavas aveda. There is a, a a biblical obligation. If you find an object that's been lost, you should try to uh, return it to him. And the Torah says, im lo karav yadato. What happens if you find an object but you don't know to whom it belongs? So you have to make an effort. And the Talmud describes exactly what kind of an effort and how do you make an effort to try to return it to him. And meanwhile, you have to take care of the object. Bring this animal into your home. And you take care of it until he comes to get it. Obviously, if it's a live animal, that's a little bit more work than if it's uh, something inanimate, like a book, for example. Okay, but whatever it is, you have to try to take care of the object until you're able to return it to him. So this is a mitzvah, well-known mitzvah, a lot of details. There's something interesting about this particular mitzvah. In um, Jewish tradition, there is a a significance to the subject. What is the first topic that we introduce a child to when he begins to learn Jewish subjects? When you first start to teach a, ta- a child Torah, what do you start with? So, yes and yes. So, there isn't one single tradition. There are several traditions. One of them is, you start with Vayikra, which doesn't seem so obvious It's the third book of the Torah. Why not start with the first book of the Torah? Well, the idea is that 
a child that is starting to learn Torah is as pure as a sacrifice on an altar and therefore there is a symbolism between the karbanos, the sacrifices, and the study of Torah and we want a person to come closer, a child to come closer to God like a person who offers a sacrifice comes closer to God and there are various layers of uh, symbolism and in many places, in many times the first verses that a child would study in, in, in school would be from the book of Ayikra. Okay, that's one. There's another tradition that let's move on to Mishnah or Talmud to start from the beginning. Barachos. Well, that makes sense. First of all, because it's the first volume. So it does make sense to start at the beginning. Also, the subject of the beginning of the Tractate of Brachos is the subject of the mitzvah saying the Shema. Saying Shema is a foundational obligation to assert the oneness of God. It makes sense to start a child's educational journey off discussing the oneness of God. All right. And there are other um, uh, um, suggestions and customs in different places. But what's fascinating is perhaps the most widespread practice in the, at least in the uh, Ashkenazic world for the study of Talmud is the second chapter of the tractate Baba Metzia. <coughs> First of all, Baba Metzia means middle volume. There's Baba Kama, first volume, Baba Metzia, middle volume, Baba Basra, third volume. So, alright, so it's already the volume that's in the middle of something, some larger work. And then, it's the second chapter. Why the second chapter, not the first chapter? Why the second volume, not the first volume? Because the subject matter of the second chapter of Baba Metziah is Elu Metzius. These are the kinds of objects that if they are lost and you find them, this is how you go about returning the lost object. And all of the details, what kind of object has to be returned and how do you return it and how do you care for it, all of the rules, the details about how to fulfill this mitzvah of returning a lost object to its owner, that subject is chosen, that should be the first thing that a child studies when they begin to study Talmud. Now that does not, on its, on its surface, sound so intuitive. But I'd like to suggest an answer, a reason for that choice, and it's something that I think we can learn a lesson from. There is something about this mitzvah. If I'm walking along the road and I see an object and I realize someone has lost it, I am obligated, according to Jewish law, to try my best to return it to its owner. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes it's difficult. Lots of details. Okay. But that idea... 
Yes, it's a mitzvah, and there are lots of mitzvahs in the Torah, but it's a mitzvah that builds character to a superior degree. It causes a moral refinement that is unusual. So, I want to share with you two stories. They're both true stories that express the this element of not just the importance of this mitzvah, but what it does to your personality, what it does to your character. So here's story number one. I heard this story from Rabbi Yisrael Reisman. I've told it to some of you before. There was a non-religious Jewish family in America. And there were two sons in this family. And as they grew up, one of the sons became religious and moved to Jerusalem, to Yerushalayim. And, as you may imagine, the religious brother would often try to convince his non-religious brother why don't you try out being religious? Why don't you why don't you see what it's like? The lifestyle and living is so beautiful. Why don't you why don't you join me? Why don't you come to Israel? Come to Jerusalem, see what it's like, see what I'm doing here. And this brother, the non-religious brother, he wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, he was a person who was traveling the world himself. He was a person who was um, intrigued by Eastern philosophy and he spent time in India with a guru and that was his thing. That was his thing. But the brother in Yerushalayim never gave up. So the brother said, the religious brother said, listen, Yari in India come to Yerushalayim. I'll pay for your ticket to Yerushalayim. Just come to Jerusalem. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. There is a place in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem, it's called Eishat Torah. Very famous place. And it's a yeshiva, a place of advanced study for people, Jews that do not have any Jewish educational background. And it's a place to go. You show up there knowing nothing and you can learn an amazing amount. And it's an incredible place. It's in the old city overlooking the Kotel. It's an incredible place. So the brother who's religious said, here's the deal I'm willing to make for you. I will give you a free, paid, all expenses paid, trip to Israel. The only thing you have to do is you have to come to Asia Torah and sit in on one class. That's all I ask. One class, you get the whole trip to Israel, do whatever else you want, go back, whatever you want. Okay? Trip to Israel. So he comes. He comes to Yerushalayim. He comes to Eish Torah for his one class. So he looks at the bulletin board 
Because there are lots of classes. It's a big place. There are lots of classes. And he looks on the bulletin board about what's being offered at that moment. And at that moment, one of the classes he sees, the title of the class is Returning Lost Things. So he thinks to himself, well, that sounds interesting. What does it mean? Returning lost souls, returning lost, you know, ideology and mysticism. That sounds pretty cool. And um, so he goes into this class. He goes into the class. He's sitting in the room. Teacher comes in. And the teacher starts as follows. If you find a coin in the street, when are you required to return it? And when are you required, and when are you allowed to keep it? Well, it depends. If the coins are stacked up in a stack in the street, then you're required to return it. But if the coins are scattered on the street, then you're allowed to keep it. Then the teacher says, what about if it's poppy seeds? So the Talmud says, the teacher is explaining, that if the, poppies, if the poppy seeds are spread over a large area, you don't have to return it. But if the poppy seeds are concentrated in a small area, then you have to return it. Meanwhile, he falls asleep. Because, I mean, you know, <laughs> poppy seeds and how many poppy seeds per square, per square meter and... And who picks up poppy seeds in the street to begin with? It's it's just it's 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 just kind of crazy. Okay, that was a class. Fulfilled his obligation. I mean, he slept through it, but he was there. Went back to India. That's the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. A month later, a month later, this non-religious brother shows up in Jerusalem. Brother says to him, the religious brother in Yerushalayim says to him, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm here because of that class. So the brother says, I, I'm really sorry about that. I, I should have guided you. I, I knew that was not going to be a class that was going to interest you. I would have guided you to one of the more, you know. Brother says, no, 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 no. I'm here because of that class. Because after that class, I went back to India. And I was talking to my guru. And we were walking from the temple to the dormitory. And there was a wallet on the ground. And the wallet had ID in it. And the wallet had money in it. And the guru picks it up and he puts it in his pocket and he says whatever is the eastern version of finders keepers you know I found it I get to keep it and I started to think to myself in Jerusalem the rabbis are teaching if I find poppy seeds how do I measure how to be able to return it and this guy just sticks it in his pocket. And I realize this is where the true value and, and, and meaning in life is. And that's why I come back.
So again, it's an amazing story. It's a true story about it's not just a mitzvah. It is a refinement of character that is uncommon in the world. And that's one of the reasons it's chosen as the first subject to teach young children when they start to study. Second story. This is an amazing story. I told this story also once before, but it was a long time ago, and most of you were not there. Now, this is a true story. I do have to... It is one version of a true story. I later learned there are other versions of the story, but this is the version that I heard, and I'm telling this version as a true story. Rabbi Barrow Wine, he should live and be well. He says, all of my stories are true. Some of them did happen, and some of them could happen. They're all true. In the 1930s, in Hungary, and other places in Europe, there were Jews, and some of them especially once Kristallnacht came, had the foresight that things are not going to go well. Some of them tried to leave. Some of them were not able to. Some of them, there were very, very, very wealthy Jews who wanted to try to at least save their fortunes. For example, the Reichman family. The Reichman family was in Europe. Samuel Reichman was in Hungary. And they had a gigantic amount of money. And the laws started to prohibit banking for Jews, transferring money, because of course the Nazis didn't want them to take their capital out of Europe. And as World War II approached, laws were passed that made it prohibitive for Jews to try to transfer money to American banks or Canadian banks, even Swiss banks. And if caught, a person could be severely punished, perhaps even killed, imprisoned, or killed. And the Reichman family had this fortune. So here's what he did. Here's what Sam Reichman did. He got from his bank cashier's checks of gigantic sums of money. One of the some of them were $75,000. Again, we're talking about 1939, very very sizable. Some of them were smaller, some of them were larger. Cashier's bankers checks Without his, without his name on it. A cashier's check. That means it's like cash. A bank check. His name was not on it. And he mailed the checks to individuals in America and Canada who he did not know. Complete strangers. One of them was Charles Bentheim. Now, Charles Bentheim 
was an amazing man, American. I know, I knew parts of the Bentheim family from Riverdale, an incredible, amazing <coughs> religious family, a, a dynasty in so many ways, amazing people. But this was like the patriarch, Charles Bentheim. He never met him, never strangers to each other. And one day, Charles Bentheim receives a letter in the mail and there's a check made out to $75,000 with no name on it. No name, no return address. Post dated from Hungary. <coughs> so he takes the check and he puts it away in a safe place. Five years later, Sam Reichman survived the war and came to Charles Bentheim and he said, did you receive a check five years ago for $75,000? And this is the identification number on the check. I can identify the check. I sent it to you. And Charles Bentheim said, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to fulfill the mitzvah to return an object to its owner and gave it back. And every single person, it was a whole network of people, and, 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 Sam Reichman didn't know any of them, only by reputation, that they were religious Jews. And he knew that they were people that would live up to this standard if you identify it, fulfill the mitzvah, they would know. It just, it's just not... There's some, I, I receive a letter like that, there's some story to it. It's not just a, 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 some kind of present. There's some story, it's coming from Hungary. There's some story... And that is how the Reichman family was able to reestablish itself and their fortune in Canada after the war through that story. So in other words, it's not just a mitzvah. It is a mitzvah. But it's a mitzvah that causes a perceptible refinement to a person's character. And that's one of the reasons that children begin with it. Okay. The next piece I want to share with you is based on an essay by Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein of Blessed Memory. It's um, an important piece of Torah, but also it is a an exemplification of Rabbi Lichtenstein's life and philosophy and approach to life. So I share it not only for what it teaches us about the Torah that we're going to study, but also what it teaches us about this amazing man who passed away a few years ago, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein. Please turn to page, next page, page 1050. <coughs> So page 1050, starting near the top of the page, Pasuk number Vav, 6, there are a series of mitzvos 
one after the other, and each one does not appear to have any connection to the one before it or the one after it. It appears to be just a random list of commandments. Let's look through it. Pasuk 6. Ki when you come across a bird, the mother bird, who is resting on its young, and you want to take the, the, the eggs or the chicks, you should send away the mother bird first. It's a mitzvah called Shiluah Hakan, send away the mother bird. Okay, it's a very complicated mitzvah. What's the reason for it? How do you do it? I'm sorry? No, I, I see the word. I... I took a few lessons, so I... Fantastic. She's reading Hebrew. Ilana, did you hear that? She's following along in Hebrew. It's beautiful. Okay. That's beautiful. Okay. So that's one mitzvah. Pasuk Ches, number eight. Kisivna bayis chadash. When you build for yourself a new house, if you have a flat roof, you have to build a fence around the roof. You're not allowed to have anything in your house that is unsafe. You're not allowed to have a roof that doesn't have a guardrail. You're not allowed, you're not allowed to have a stairs, a set of stairs without a guardrail. You're not allowed, even if it's your own personal private home, your private property, and, and this is actually, a, a, the Talmud says it's a much more general mitzvah. You're not allowed to have or do anything that is not safe. You have to live a safe life. Not allowed to drive without a seatbelt. You're not allowed, etc., etc., etc. Okay. Losasim damim bebeisecha. God forbid you should not allow any blood to be spilled in your home. By the way, that's even a, a trespasser, right? Even someone that has no right there, you still don't want to be the cause of them being hurt. Okay. Fine. That's about building houses. Number test number nine. Losizra karma chaklayim. When you plant your field, you're not allowed to plant two different species together at the same time to crossbreed. You can plant corn here, and you can plant barley there, but you can't mix the corn and the barley and plant it together. Why? What's wrong with it? Okay, we'll leave that for another time. What's it got to do with building a house? It doesn't appear to have anything. Let's look at the next one. Losacharosh, Pasuk 10. Losacharosh, if you're plowing with animals, so let's say you need uh, two animals to pull the plow, usually you'd have, let's say, two oxen. You're not allowed to have uh, an ox and a donkey pulling the same plow because different animals move with a different gait and it causes discomfort, both physical and probably mental, emotional discomfort or anxiety or pain to an animal, and we're not allowed to do that. All right? Verse 11. Los silbash shotnays. Don't wear shotnays. That means we're not allowed to wear a garment that has both linen and wool mixed into it. That means if you buy a garment, you have to check the label. Sometimes you have to check the garment. There are chemical tests that can be done to determine sometimes in a man's suit you can have, it, it can be made out of wool, but sometimes the buttons are sewn on with linen thread. So, it's a problem. You have to be careful about it. Then, finally, number 12, 
Gedilim taselach al arba kanfos kesuscha. You should put tzitzis in the corners of your four-cornered garment. You have a garment like a, a talus. It's square, has four, gar- four corners. You have to put tzitzis, the little strings in the edge. <coughs> okay, so the question is obvious. Even after you've examined and understood each one of the mitzvahs, but what's the order? What's the context? What are they doing together? So Rashi quotes an opinion that says as follows. Rashi says, if you fulfill the mitzvah of sending the mother bird away, God will reward you. You will have the opportunity to buy, to build a new house. And if when you build a new house, you make sure to have a fence around the open uh, uh, roof so no one gets hurt, then you will God will give you the opportunity to uh, have a field and if you will uh, have a field and be careful not to mix the species God will reward you you'll have animals and if you'll have animals and you'll be careful to treat them properly God will reward you you'll have clothing and then you should put the tits on your clothing each mitzvah leads to the next because it's a reward. Each one is a reward for the previous mitzvah, and 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 uh, and it leads, and that's and that's the order. So, in other words, what Rashi is saying, the Torah is promising us, and you know, you do have to be a little careful with the Torah's promises to to to, to understand them within context, because. We do know that there are people who who perform mitzvos and 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 not all good things happen to them. But so there are different ways to understand that. But the Torah is saying the reward for doing these mitzvos it, it allows you to live a long life, not only to live a long life, but a better and a better life. You have all these more things, and things, and life is getting better. Okay, with God's help. Okay, that's one approach. Now here's a completely different approach. comes from the Midrash and the Midrash says why are these verses mitzvahs next to each other what's the connection and the the Midrash quotes a different Pasuk from the book of Mishlei the book of Proverbs and the verse is as follows I'm sorry I don't have it copied for you but here's what the Pasuk says. The Pasuk is talking about the Torah. And concerning the Torah, this verse in Mishle, Proverbs says, Ki livyas chen hein l'roshecha they, they shall be for you. The words of Torah, the, the mitzvos of the Torah, shall be for you. Livyas chen, a graceful accompaniment something that accompanies you all the time, like a necklace, like a, a bejeweled necklace around your neck. Says Rabbi Pinchas ben Chama, wherever you go, there's a mitzvah to do. You're taking a walk in the forest, oh, there's a mitzvah. I see a bird, 
you're uh, walking into a house. Oh, there's a mitzvah. Got to make sure everything is safe. You're doing some farming. Oh, there's a mitzvah. Got to be careful how I plant the seeds. You're around animals. Oh, I got to be careful. There's a mitzvah. Every second of every day of every life, we are surrounded by the opportunities to do mitzvah. And that's what this is teaching us. It's teaching us that the mitzvahs accompany us through life. Now, I want to just explain this because many people of other religions and many Jews divide human existence into two realms. There's the religious realm and there's the secular realm. On Shabbos you go to shul. On Yom Tov you go to shul. During the week you go to work. On Shabbos I'm not working. But I go to work. Don't bother me about uh, religious stuff. That's where I go to work. It's a bifurcated existence. And that is the reality for many, many people, including many, many Jews. God has something to say about what I do on Shabbos, how I pray, when I observe the holidays. But if I'm doing neutral stuff, if I'm going to work, if I'm taking a walk, if I'm reading a book, if I'm going on vacation, if I'm playing a game, God says, I'm, I'm off duty now. I, I, I can, uh, it's, not my, it's not my area. Come back to shul and we'll talk about what you're supposed to do. The problem with that approach, first of all, it's wrong, <laughs> but the problem with it is a person who lives that kind of a life gives up on the significance of anything they place in the neutral category. Well, religion is praying and how I eat and Shabbos. That's, that's religion. That's, that's important. The other stuff is not so important. So it doesn't make a difference how I earn a living. I earn a living in a more honorable way, a less honorable way. What does it matter? It's not, it's not important. What I do in my leisure time, it doesn't matter. It's not important. That's not where I'm focusing. I could do things a little bit nicer. I could do things maybe even not so nice because it's not important. It's not, no one's looking. No one cares. It's not important. And the truth is that there are certain groups of Jews who act that way. And there, there develops a disdain for mundane, secular areas of life because it's not important. What's important is religion. What's important is Judaism, God and spirituality. The other stuff is not important. And I can show disdain for it. This Midrash and our approach to life strongly, strongly, strongly disagrees with that approach. Our approach says along the lines of this Midrash wherever you go in life mitzvahs go with you. 
how you go to work, mitzvahs go with you. Honestly. Being a good representative. Being a kind person. How you go on vacation, how you act on vacation. You saw the article in the news. I mean, unfortunately, I don't mean to say this. Is a whole genre of news articles, Israelis acting badly on vacation. The last one involved uh, some fountains in Italy not exactly dressed the way that the Italian authorities wanted them to be. Okay, there's a genre, uh, you know. Um, how you go on vacation? How do you take a walk? Do you appreciate Hashem's creation? Do you appreciate what it means to have a beautiful day and Hashem makes a beautiful day for us? How do you rest? You rest just because you're tired or you rest because you want to be able to achieve more the next day? To appreciate it? Every area of life is holy. There is no such thing as neutral. That's what this section of mythos is teaching us. You take a walk, you got to be looking for a mitzvah. You see some animals, you got to be looking for a mitzvah. You see some animals. You got to be thinking to yourself, are they being treated okay? Do they need anything? Can I help in any way? You're walking down the street, you see something on the ground. There's a mitzvah. Should I pick it up? Okay, you have to learn Elamitzias to figure it out. Should I pick it up? How do I return it? How do I Everywhere you go, There is no ploy, there is no place devoid of God. And there is no time devoid of God. Every moment and every place has the opportunity to be accompanied by mitzvahs. So I'll tell you a story. I'm going to repeat this story in a couple weeks, but but I have to tell this story. So, Marcy and I were on vacation in Israel. We had a wonderful time you in, in August. <laughs> <laughs> I did not go to a fountain. And I did not act in that manner. So, Marcy and I have a favorite restaurant. It's called Crave. It's a restaurant in Yerushalayim. So first of all, if you have been to this restaurant, Crave, in Yerushalayim, you should go back. And if you have not been, you should make plans to go. It's an unbelievably fantastic restaurant. It's just great. It is an informal, uh, very hip, loud music. There's a, a vibe. It's right on the edge of the Machani Yehuda Shuk in Jerusalem. The food is just unbelievable. It's, it's so fantastic. So Friday afternoon, we went for lunch. We had an idea that where we were going to dinner, the food was not going to be so good. And we were right. It was not my mother's house. And uh, we went to late Friday afternoon, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, something like that. We went to Crave. And we're there, and we're having such a good time. First of all, first of all, we start with uh, frozen vodka lemonade. So 
That sets the tone. <laughs> and then the food, one course after another, it's just, it's just so delicious. Everything is just perfect. And the music, it's rocking. It's, it's just great. It's just great. And then kind of all of a sudden, like it's getting later, you know, maybe 3 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, something like that. All of a sudden, the music changes. And we hear this loud, rock, beautiful music. L'chadodi. <laughs> L'chadodi. Getting ready to, 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 to uh, welcome Shabbos, to receive Shabbos. And we're just sitting there and thinking to ourselves, first of all, where else in the world besides Crave in Yerushalayim can you have an experience like that? But it's just, it's just, it's so natural. It's just, it's part of life. Yeah, Friday afternoon starts to get late. You got to start seeing the Chadodi. Because Friday is, is, is sliding into Shabbos. And this, just this being accompanied by the constant opportunities for mitzvahs at every moment. And we experienced that at that restaurant. And that's, I'm, I'm, I presume Rav Lichtenstein would not have used that example, but that idea that that's what this parsha is teaching us. Wherever you go, whatever you do, whenever you are, there are mitzvahs to do. And it's an approach to life. And that means that everything has to be appreciated. You have to be careful about work. And you have to be careful about getting on the bus. And you have to be careful about how you walk down the street. And you have to be careful about how you go on vacation. Because it can be imbued with holiness. Okay. Let me go to a different uh, subject, please. Our parsha contains the mitzvos of marriage and of divorce. There's a a question as follows. Today if a couple gets married, so the custom is they celebrate for seven days. Sheva brachos, seven blessings. For seven days they're celebrating. If a chasan or a kala would come to shul during the seven days, the congregation changes the prayers that they say. On a regular, let's say a weekday, there's a prayer called Tachanun, which is a little bit of a sad prayer. And if there's a chasan or a kala in shul, it's like a celebration, and we omit. It's like a holiday. Which is kind of a strange thing, because maybe everybody in shul knows that bride and groom, and they're very happy to see them, but they could be a stranger. No one could know them, possibly. I can understand for the bride and the groom they're celebrating seven days. They should celebrate, so they should skip that prayer because they're celebrating. But why should the whole congregation skip that prayer? Because of that? So, let's, let's come back to a different question and we'll pull it together.
613 mitzvahs divided into five books of Moses. Not evenly divided. Only a handful in Bereshis. Lots in Shemos, mostly about Exodus and the holidays. Lots in Vayikra, all about the, the temple and the sacrifices and the, and the priests and the Levites. But Midbar, not so many. It's more narrative. And Dvarim is the most. The most number of the 613. What determines, how did God decide where to put each mitzvah? How come mitzvah A is in this book and mitzvah B is in that book? Specifically, let's, let's discuss our subject. Why is it that the mitzvah of marriage and divorce is in this parsha? I would have thought it belongs, let's say, in Vayikra that deals with the uh, um, categories of people who are not allowed to marry. In Vayikra, the Torah tells us uh, certain relatives were not allowed to ma- not allowed to marry each other. Maybe it would have made sense there. You're talking about marriage, so say there's a mitzvah to get married, but you can't marry that person, but you can marry this person. And if God forbid, if the marriage doesn't work out, then here's the mitzvah. Uh, then then here's how you divorce. Why why isn't it there and why is it here? So, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky says that it's an answer that's given in a more general fashion. Now, this answer is not going to be a, um, a smooth, perfect answer. There are exceptions to it. But as a general theme, the first four books of the, of the Torah have the mitzvot that apply to individuals. And Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Torah, the one that we're in now, has the mitzvot that relate to society. Says Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, hold on a minute. If that's true, then the question is only stronger. Why is marriage and divorce? Marriage and divorce is between a, a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. That's the most private, the most individual thing that there could be. Why is it in Devarim? It should have been in Vayikra. Says Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Marriage and divorce is not only a subject that affects two individuals. Marriage and divorce, and this is specifically our view of marriage and divorce, is a societal subject. If you look through the Torah, one of the words that you see most in describing the collection of the Jewish people is according to their families. The family unit is the building block of the Jewish people. The place where Judaism is created and formed and nurtured and passed on is not the synagogue and it's not the school. It's the home. And I've said this many times, and if it's not happening in the home, the synagogue and the school and other Jewish institutions are not up to the task of being able to substitute for them. That's part of the problem we see in the modern era. 
marriage and divorce is about how we set up a society. And therefore, what that teaches us is we need to have policies that support marriage, that make marriages stronger. Policies within our institutions, within our synagogues. And that also means we need to be more careful to look out for those that do not fit into that model. Because since that's the normal model, that's the ideal model, there is a danger. But what happens if someone is not in that model? There is a danger of them falling through the cracks. We have to make sure no one is ignored, no one is excluded. Because it's so family-oriented. So what happens if someone does not have a family? You have to make sure that you provide a family. You have to make sure that you include them. No one can be left alone. It's an interesting law. According to Jewish law, a chuppah, a Jewish marriage, it's required to have a minion. You have to have a minion present. Why? Logically, it doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, marriage is a private agreement between two individuals in the presence of two kosher witnesses. Why do you need a minion? You need a minion because marriage is about society. And a minion represents the societal impact. And that's the blessing that we use. You, you'll hear this so often. We wish to someone who gets married, a couple that gets married, may you build a bias Naman be Israel. A bias Naman, a strong, firm, faithful household within Israel. Yes, you're happy with each other. Yeah, you love each other. That's very nice. Yes, it's very important. I'm not minimizing it. But what's also happening is you're building the Jewish people. And that's why marriage and divorce is in this parsha. So I want to just take the last few minutes to go to one last subject. And if you turn, please, to page 1058. This is a little bit heavy. It's a little bit heavy way to end off the evening. I understand that. But page 1058, near the top of the page, Pasuk number one. A man and a woman are married. And it happens that the husband no longer wants to be married to his wife because he finds that she has been unfaithful to him. He shall write for her a bill of separation. We refer to that document today as a get. The word get is an Aramaic word that means document, but today we use it to refer to that specific document that is a document of Jewish divorce. He will write for her a, a, a get and place it in her hand, and she leaves his home, they live separately, and they go on with their lives. Divorce 
is one of the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah. It's one of the 613 commandments of the Torah is divorced. You know, if, if, I ask, if I ask you, what does the word mitzvah mean? A lot of people will translate mitzvah as good deed. Okay, yeah, sometimes. Not every mitzvah is a good deed. Divorce is a mitzvah. A mitzvah means this is what I'm commanded to do at this moment in this circumstance. If it happens to be Friday night, then I have to hold a, a, a kiddush cup and, and say kiddush. That's a mitzvah. And if nebuch, the situation of a marriage is such that a divorce is, is necessary, then the mitzvah, what God commands me to do at that moment, is to have a Jewish divorce again. What does it mean that divorce is a mitzvah? What are the consequences of that? So I want to share a couple of ideas that I think are very, very important. First of all, the Torah is telling us that sometimes, tragically, a marriage will not work. And I'm talking about even if the couple wants it to work and even if they work on it and they go to therapists and they try to get help, sometimes a marriage will not work. And though marriage is so important that a couple should try to make it work if possible, the Torah is teaching us that Sometimes it's not going to work. And if it doesn't work, the right thing is to have a divorce. Because a person is not supposed to go through life miserable. The Talmud says, in a slightly different uh, context, no one is expected to live inside a small basket together with a snake. (laughs) Not supposed to be miserable. You should try to make it better. You should work hard to make it better. But if you can't, number one, there will be times that you can't. And if you can't, here is what the Torah says you should do about it. And that teaches us a very, very important lesson. It teaches us, number one, a family has the right to be happy. What Hashem wants for us is to have a family, ideally, and to be happy in that family. And if we are not happy, and we've tried to be happy, but we're still not able to be happy, Hashem does not want us to continue living living in, in misery together with that snake in the same basket. Number two, the term that is used is Sefer Krisus, which literally means a, a, a scroll, a book, or a scroll, or a document of Krisus. Krisus means cutting, cutting, splitting, rendering, rending asunder. The main principle of a Jewish divorce is that at the moment that the get takes place, the relationship is severed completely. 
not with any remnant, but separated. Not with any connection lasting. And that's tremendously important. That means that when a couple divorces, the husband has no right to tell the wife what to do because, it's, because they're not husband and wife. The wife has no right to tell the husband what to do because they're, she's not a wife. They're not husband and wife. There is the desire for the couple to be able to separate and then each go on with their own lives and find their own happiness. In fact... One, in, in, in Jewish law, if a couple were to have a get but still be living together, the get would be invalid. You can't have a get if you're still living together. Because it means you go your own way. Go. Leave each other alone. Go away. Go. Let it be. Now, I'm talking a little bit here about ideal because in real society, first of all, if there are children, then you're never completely separate. So that, that, that is, but let's at least recognize that is going to, and that is one of the causes of ongoing problems, is the interaction, the, the, the points of friction, the, the contact. Sometimes you just want to say to a couple, just, you know, just leave each other alone, go away, don't answer the phone. Don't pick up the phone. Don't answer the phone. Don't call. Don't answer. Just let it be. Yes, I understand when there are children that can be impossible in other situations. But leaving aside the children because there's no option. What are you going to do? I mean, they're children. You have to take care of the children. But from a financial point of view, so here in North America, usually what happens in a case of divorce, that even if there's a get, the secular court will take care of the financial arrangements. Which is not such a good thing. Let me explain what I mean. In Jewish law, the financial arrangements at the time of divorce is that, number one, the husband is obligated to continue to pay the complete support for the children. And the husband is obligated to pay a lump sum settlement to his, to his ex. The idea being it's enough money for her to live for about two years for her to be able to get back on her own feet and to be able to support herself. But the important part is lump sum. Crisis. Let's, 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 let's do it now. Separate. You don't have to call for checks. You don't have to call for money. You don't have to get involved. No. Lump sum, one time, it's over. I go my way, you go your way. Now, again, really, I understand, practically speaking, it doesn't always work out like that because we live in a complicated society. I'm just trying to share with you an analysis of what the mitzvah itself is trying to achieve. Number three. If it's a mitzvah, that means that when a marriage is clearly over, when they've tried and it's not working, and let's say even an objective uh, party says, you know, there's no hope for this marriage. At that point, it is a mitzvah to give and receive a get. And for anyone to withhold or refuse a get under those circumstances is to violate that mitzvah. 
That's if you refuse for no reason. If you refuse or withhold because you want leverage, let's say uh, uh, some kind of payment, or you want leverage in some kind of negotiation, that's a separate crime called extortion. That's a separate one. But even without extortion, once the mitzvah, once the marriage is clearly over, then there is a mitzvah. A mitzvah means you got to do it. And remember, one of the early mitzvahs, Hashem commanded Avram, by Yash came Avram Baboker. He woke up early in the morning and took care of his obligation. You have to do it right away once it's clear that it's over. Last, last point. Jewish divorce, I'm talking about a get, I'm not talking about it in court, I'm talking about a get, is no fault. And it is not a personal failure. The ceremony of a get has no discussion of guilt or wrongdoing or who did what to whom. And it must be voluntary on both sides. When a couple realize that they, and if their children, their children, are better off apart, then the Torah calls upon them to undergo this divorce with respect, with dignity, not to point blame, not to point fingers. It's not part of the ceremony. And the truth is, that is when you create the situation that has the best chance for children not to be affected. Because there's gigantic research about the damage done to children of divorce. One of the most positive parts of that research, you know, the negative parts are that the damage lasts for decades and it's worse than anybody thought. There's a famous researcher, Dr. Judith Wallerstein, who did tremendous research on the effects of divorce even decades later. The positive is, if a couple can manage to divorce with civility, they can reduce and almost eliminate the negative effects to their children. The negative effects to children don't come from divorce. They come from children being put in the middle. And lastly, if we can do that, we can model for our children the ability to treat others with respect even when things are not going well. That's really what it's about. To be able to treat someone with respect even if I'm upset, even if I think you did something wrong, even if I'm angry, but I'm still going to be civil and I'm still going to be respectful. And that is one of the most important life lessons that we can learn for ourselves and that we can teach for our children and that is the goal of the Torah's mitzvah of divorce. Thank you very much.